Hi, I'm Amelia Merrill, and you're listening to Drinking and Joshing, Torah with a Twist. And if you haven't voted yet, you probably should get on that. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. I actually know for a fact that you have a special relationship to this week's portion. Oh, what's my special relationship to this week's Torah portion? Well, you actually really have loved acting out this week's Torah portion, or at least a part of this week's Torah portion at Rosh Hashanah time. Isn't that true? Oh, okay. So here's the deal. When I was little, I went to Temple Israel in Boston, Massachusetts, and they had, I'm not sure if they still do, but at the time, they had this tradition where on Rosh Hashanah morning, the teens in the family service would act out the Akedah in English with Torah trope. So they would chant their lines in English with the Torah trope melodies. And I don't remember any of it except for here is the wood and here is the knife. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Every year they did that. I remember every year. And now, whenever I need to get into high holiday Torah trope, I think to myself, here is the wood and here is the knife. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's how I remember it. Okay, so I know that you're talking about the Akedah, which is part of this week's portion, Vayera, but I have a question for you. Well, here is the co-host, and here is the other co-host, but where's the guest for today's episode? Oh my goodness, I don't know. Where is she? Where'd she go? I think she's waiting for us to get started. Oh, okay, well then we should probably do that and stop chanting Torah. Story time? Story time! Last week, we went on quite the journey with Lech Lecha, and to be fair, there were quite a few stories in that Parsha, but I love me a good story time, and this week's portion has so many different stories, tableaus, visions, things that just make you go, wow, how is it possible that all of those things happen within just one Torah portion? Storytelling seems to be a bit of a challenge, but It seems like here it just weaves together beautifully and that's been an incredible thing for me to look at, for Gabe to look at, and for us we're so lucky because we actually have a storyteller coming to join us this week to help us understand Vieira just a little bit better. Amelia Merrill, she, her, is a journalist and playwright based in New York. She regularly covers theater, film, television, women in media, and Jewish culture in her work. She's a contributing editor at American Theater Magazine and a contributing writer at Awards Watch. Her work has appeared in Hey Alma, Narratively, Mike, and many other places. She holds an MS from Syracuse University and a BA from Dickinson College. Amelia, we're so excited to have you on the show and to share some stories together. Welcome to Drinking and Joshing, Tour with a Twist. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We're really thrilled to have you here, and in fact... It is through this person that we got to connect. And so, Gabe Snyder, how's it going? Hello, it's great to be here. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great. I know for a fact that you have some sort of connection with Amelia. Do you want to shout out a special place that both of you have in common? Absolutely. Amelia and I met at first at Skidmore College, my undergrad, where Amelia and I overlapped for just a little bit of time. But we're super excited to get to reconnect on Drinking and Drashing Torah with a Twist. Incredible. And Keith, don't you think that we might have a story time for our listeners coming up soon? I mean, probably. I think we should get started. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. You know, I heard a secret that your favorite thing in the world to do is Tat Shabbat. Oh, I love Tat Shabbat. I love Tat Shabbat so much. What is Tat Shabbat? Okay, so Tat Shabbat is this magical place where you sit on the floor with a whole bunch of small children, like very small children. We'll call them tots. And you sit on the floor with the tots and you sing songs about like Shabbat dinosaurs and things like that. And it's just so fun because the whole point is to be silly and Jewish and like be a child. It's great. It's amazing. I love Tat Shabbat. Okay, so you sing songs. Do you do anything else? Yeah, we um, might light the candles. We'll maybe have a snack. We'll have the parents like bless their kids. Yeah, the kids love all of those things. Oh, and you know, there's my favorite part. Story time. Story time. Story time. So Abraham's just circumcised himself and he's still a bit sore. So he's sitting by the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day when suddenly the Eternal, or three men, appear standing before him. Abraham jumps up to greet them, bowing low to the ground and invites them to rest for a bit. Take a load off. I'll give you some water, some food, whatever. Sounds good to us, say the mystery dudes. So Abraham tells Sarah to make some bread while he goes out and has a servant prepare a calf and also some dairy products and the mystery dudes eat under a tree. Where's Sarah, they ask, over in the tent. Well, in a year's time, she's gonna have a son. Sarah overhears that and can't contain her laughter. After all, her husband is so old. God tells Abraham that Sarah laughed, but kind of fudges the details on why she thought it was so funny. The dudes are about to head towards Sodom, but the Eternal decides to tell Abraham what's up. Those people in that city over there, they're bad people. I'm a kill them. Wait, what? Says Abraham. You can't do that. You would kill 50 innocent people just because they're guilty ones there too? Okay, fine, replies God. If there are 50 innocent people, I will spare the city. Cool. How about 45? Ugh, fine. 40? This went on for a while, but it ends with God promising not to destroy the city for the sake of 10 innocent people. So two messengers go to Sodom and Lot is sitting by the gate. Much like Abraham, Lot runs up to greet them, bows low to the ground, and invites them to stay at his house. No thanks, we'd rather sleep outside. Lot convinces them that that's a bad idea, so they come inside for dinner, but before they can go to bed, the townspeople surround the house and demand that the visitors be brought out. Lot offers his virgin daughters instead of the men, but the townspeople aren't interested. They try to knock down the door, but in an action sequence that would be right at home in a Marvel movie, the mystery dudes strike the invaders with pure light so bright that it blinds them, rendering them unable to find the entrance. The mystery dudes tell Lot and his family to leave because, as God said earlier, they're gonna destroy the whole city. So, after some back and forth, Lot and his wife and daughters are still pretty nervous, but the mystery dudes pick them up and drop them outside of the city, which God promptly destroys. Don't look back, too late, says Lot's wife, turning into a pillar of salt. So, Lot's daughters think they're literally the last women on Earth, and their father the last man on Earth. 
Thinking they need to personally repopulate the entire planet, they get their father drunk one night and become pregnant. Moving on from that whole thing, remember that time Abraham lied to those Egyptians about Sarah being his sister? Well, that worked out so well last time, he decided to try it again with the Gerarites and their king, Abimelech. It kind of works again, I guess, because Abraham gets a whole bunch of sheep and oxen and slaves and silver cool. Speaking of Sarah, wasn't she supposed to have a baby? Yup, let's name him Isaac, because Sarah laughed. Now, the whole point of Sarah giving Hagar to Abraham was to have a son on Sarah's behalf, but Sarah did that herself, and she doesn't really want Isaac to have to split his inheritance with Ishmael, or worse, get nothing at all. So she convinces Abraham to kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. So Hagar and Ishmael go out wandering in the wilderness, and they run out of water, and the boy is crying, and Hagar places him under a bush so she won't have to watch him die. But God hears the crying, and miraculously, a well appears before Hagar. Nice. So Ishmael grows up, big and strong, and marries a nice Egyptian girl, and they all live happily ever after. Oh, by the way, Abraham makes some deals with Abimelech. Now, clearly not enough has happened in this Torah portion, and God is getting kind of bored, so God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, the one whom he loves, Isaac, into the land of Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Wait, after all of that ridiculousness to have a son, we're just gonna sacrifice him? Yup! So Abraham gets on his donkey with his son and some wood and a couple of servants, and they set off for Moriah. Upon reaching a certain place, Abraham tells the servants to wait with the donkey while he and Isaac go on alone. Hey dad, I see wood, I see a knife, but aren't we forgetting the lamb for the offering? Err. So they get to the top of the mountain and Abraham builds an altar and ties up Isaac and is just about to kill him when an angel calls out, wait, and so they stop. Good work everyone, it was just a test, and you passed, yay? So Abraham sacrifices a wild ram instead, and they return together and settle in Beersheba. And that's Parashat Vayera. I don't think enough happened. I'm so bored. <laughs> we have absolutely nothing to talk about. This Parsha always makes me wonder why the Babylonian era sages divided it the way that they did and why they didn't make it shorter. And I don't know the answer. I don't know if that's an answer anyone knows. I think there's a few in Breshi, so I have this question and I, you know, my research is basically like, uh, because we said so was basically the MO of the sages, which is fair, but it just seems like so jam-packed that maybe we could benefit from making it shorter, splitting it in half, or splitting it in thirds. No, there's a lot going on. To be fair, in the past, there was also the triennial cycle, where each one Torah portion would be actually like three Torah portions. So that may make it a little better, but you still have so much going on. And then you have other narratives, like the whole Joseph narrative happens over to Torah port. Like, there are narratives that take up more space than they might probably need, and there are some Torah portions that take up so little space, or stories that take up so little space, that it's honestly kind of shocking. It does seem interesting to me, though, from the perspective of journalism, this idea of taking a really big story and condensing it into very few words to fit, like, into a certain, you know, you have this many column inches, you gotta fill it, you know, and you have... You might have one story, you might have 12, you gotta fit it into the same, you know, however much space you have. I'm curious if these stories happened, you know, in front of the Washington Post, how they would break up their byline. Yeah, what's the headline? Because I think it's easy to skip to the end and say, like, 
man attempts to kill coveted son, but there's so much else happening that, you know, is also front page news in a way. Right. Meanwhile, city in ruins, like woman turns into salt, like there's there's a lot going on. Yes, reading some commentary on the sort of like, just bizarre, like comments on Sarah's body and why she's laughing and how someone could mistake her for being beautiful, like for Abraham's motivation to say that she's his sister, like how could someone still think that she's beautiful if she's probably like 100 years old at this point? Just some very interesting antiquated commentary out there. Absolutely. I'm really excited to kind of dive a little bit deeper into these questions and more in our next segment. So I'm going to hand the mic back over to Amanda for that. I really love the combination of history and professions that you have. You're a journalist, which means that you're telling stories that are happening in real time that are impacting the world as we know it today. But you're also a playwright, which means that in some ways you are putting in your interpretation and commentary to how you see life today, which I think is a mix of what the Torah does. I think the Torah kind of in some ways reported on what happened and in some ways is a commentary on what they believe happened or should have happened. And so I'm curious as to how you and your journalism and your playwright got started in telling these stories and sharing these stories and figuring out what's real and what's our commentary on what's happening in our lives today. Wow. Thank you. That's very like high praise to relate my work and Torah in the same sentence. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got into journalism like not accidentally, but I came to arts journalism from an arts perspective. I was a theater major in undergrad. And then I got out of college and got an internship at a theater magazine. And so I was just sort of like thrown into the magazine life in New York City in like a physical office with a physical magazine that isn't in print anymore because of COVID on budget stuff. But I had a few months of like regular newspaper life and then everything shifted because I graduated college in 2019. So it was a strange time to enter journalism or the arts or arts journalism. But I love interviewing artists and writing about their work and getting to hear what they have to say because I think that sometimes they find a little more clarity in what they're trying to get across with some sort of product, whether that's like a movie or a piece of theater. Just talking about it with someone who is giving them more than five seconds to really like dig into a conversation helps them have a clearer image of the message that they want the work to put out. And I feel really honored when we get to have those breakthroughs in those interviews and conversations that turn into articles because so much of journalism can just be like a rush to publish. You know, I just covered the New York Film Festival, which was awesome. But when you're covering films that are premiering, it's like a rush to just get the reviews and reactions out without really like sitting with a piece of art. And I like that, you know, with Torah, like you're forced to sit with a piece of text that maybe you don't understand the first time you read it, or it makes you very uncomfortable, or you just don't know how it relates to you as a person necessarily. And we just sort of make ourselves sit with it and grapple with it. And we do it like every year. And the moment we're done, we do it again. 
I couldn't have said it better. That's like really such a wonderful description of Torah that it's something that we just sit with. And even when we're not sitting with it, we're waiting to sit with it again, like a year from then. And speaking of these moments that are like really difficult and that we might really struggle to see ourselves within, this Torah portion has some super problematic and frankly just weird moments. A, like what jumps out to you as either like super relatable or super whatever the opposite of relatable is, or where do you really see yourself? What draws you in about this Torah portion? I think that the something that's relatable, but in a way that, you know, is, is unfortunate is that there's multiple men in this Parsha who are very willing to give up the women in their lives to some sort of crowd, some sort of usurper as like a bargaining chip with his daughters. And then to some degree, I'd say Abraham with Sarah and Abimelech sort of trying to figure out, okay, should I say you're my sister? Like, what, what are we going to do here? I think that, you know, that is definitely a reflection of the era and legal codes of the time and whatnot. But yeah, it's very disheartening to like read something about, for example, Lot saying, okay, take my daughters and think that this is like a theme today. But it is. And in terms of what what else draws me in about, you know, it's hard to like think like, where do I see myself? It's like, who do you want to identify with in this Parsha? Oh my gosh. Right. Like, there's something really weird about that, right? Because we love stories where we can, like, see ourselves or where we root for the main character. You know, I, this is a total non sequitur, but we're going to go with it because we can. I was talking to my dad the other day about that TV show Succession. And he's like, I just couldn't get into it. And I was like, wait, why? It, like, there's so much going on. There's so many interesting characters. Like, they, he's like, they're all awful. They're all terrible people. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you watch lots of shows where everybody's terrible. Like, you loved Breaking Bad. You loved House of Cards. Like, they're all terrible people. And he goes, yeah, but I still rooted for those terrible people. I still wanted those terrible people to win for some reason. I don't want anybody to win here. And I can't help but feel a similar way about this Torah portion of like, I'm not sure anybody is in the right at any point in this Torah portion, except maybe Hagar and Ishmael. And like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I'm just picturing Isaac and Ishmael as like the Roy siblings fighting for their inheritance. Ooh. That is interesting. And I think the rabbis might disagree with you on like, is Ishmael in the right here? Because there's so many ways to interpret the idea of him playing as like, is that violent? Is he doing something physical to Isaac? And it's obviously like, how do you get so much out of this one line? But you know, that's what we do is pull a lot from just a few lines. Yeah, absolutely. So I am curious because of kind of this storytelling kind of lens we're going through or angle we're taking on this Torah portion, our whole Torah kind of has a through line. Like this is the story of our people. And, you know, we start with creation, we go through Noah, it's all very exciting. We get to last week to Parshat Lech Lecha, where we have Abraham and we have the covenant and we have this like very exciting moment of Abraham being told he's going to be a father of nations and we're that nation and we're super excited and that's our people. And then this week, we kind of see the next link in that chain. We kind of get the next piece of that through line where Isaac is born and in order to go down that path, we kind of have to put to the side this other branch of the family tree, 
Ishmael, who, like, is important. He's there. There are stories about him. His mother's a prophet. Like, his mother is the only person in the entire Torah who gets to name God, so that's cool. But we don't get to follow his story. Instead, we say, nope, we're going to follow Isaac's story. So I am curious about that. It's kind of like, you know, it's... I almost am curious of like, well, what if there were a book written about like what happens to Ishmael during that time? It's like you need a piece of fan fiction on that. Like you need something to go off on. You need a spinoff show. Yeah. I think it's funny that you talk about like a spinoff or like a prequel, a novel or something, because it makes me think of like the joke that like the Midrash is biblical fan fiction in a way, like filling in the blanks. I was reading today on Safaria about like, okay, like, why are we casting out Ishmael? Like, what did he do? And there's, like, a little story in the Gemara about Ishmael and Isaac, like, arguing about whose circumcision was worse (laughs) and stuff like that. And there is, like, some filling in the blank because I guess we just feel the need to justify our actions as a people, knowing that the actions of Sarah and Abraham are our actions. Those are our ancestors. And I read a Jewish history book recently. Chaim Potok was mostly a novelist, but he wrote a Jewish history book called Wanderings. And I read in the book that under Mesopotamian law that was common at the time, Sarah really didn't have to do to Hagar and Ishmael what she did. She could have just said, you're free, like you're not servants anymore. And that would have legally removed Ishmael's right to inheritance. So it's like, wow, why did she do all this then? Was it just to be cruel? And there's some commentary that basically says, yeah, I mean, this is what jealousy can do to someone. I think one of the things that happens is that we have gaps. Like, I love this idea that Midrash exists, and I love calling it fanfic, you know, but I think sometimes there are gaps that people don't understand, and people create these stories to help them get a better grip of what's going on in our Torah portion. I mean, I know that you were talking with us before this podcast started recording about the fact that People have certainly found a lot of ways to do that with the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. People in Israel really connected to the Akedah because they felt like it was happening to their soldiers, that their soldiers were being sacrificed. And so the Akedah became a huge thing for the people of Israel in the 1967 war when people were just struggling with the fact that they felt like they were sacrificing up their sons. Other people have used the Akedah as a way to explain that we were different because we weren't giving child sacrifices at that time when other religions might have been. Other people believe that maybe it's possible that Isaac was sacrificed and God brought Isaac back to life. And so it's really challenging because there are a ton of gaps that people fill in. My question for you as both a playwright that kind of allows for creativity in filling those gaps and telling our stories And being a journalist, when filling those gaps of the stories might be, like, a little treacherous, how do we know which way to turn, right? Like, if we're doing ourselves a favor by helping us make a connection, or if we're doing damage by spreading misinformation? Yeah, that is a weighty question. I feel like something that, as a playwright, my work has focused on a lot is the meaning of legacy and, like, myth-making and meaning-making and when engaging with a person or a work of art when that goes from an intellectual pursuit or a cultural pursuit and turns into like a way to usurp the intention of that thing and can you even know if that's possible with some 
figures or artworks if the work has become so bastardized through generations. And, you know, I like as a journalist, I feel like so much of my work is about art, like I'll review a film or something like that. And I never want to say, well, this is what I would have done or this is what I think should have happened because that's just not like the role of criticism. You can have a conversation with your friend about what you might have done in a movie differently, but that's not the purpose of film criticism. And I think that when you're grappling with text and Torah, like it gives you that rare space for both. Like you have people who say that it might be inappropriate to say, this is how I would have done something. And who would say in response, no, like we're not talking about that. We're looking at what was done and we're trying to understand why, like this is the word of God. Just like, let's accept that first to come into the text. And then you also have people who would say, no, let's talk about something potentially being an inaccuracy or a discrepancy or just plain like wrong, something, whether from like a moral perspective or a historical perspective, like, you know, let's grapple with those things and how do we marry those two approaches? And like in my own work, I try to keep those approaches separate because when I'm doing my journalism, I'm not necessarily, I'm bringing in my training and my like research as a playwright, but I'm not speaking as like an artist in a way that would create like a conflict of interest. But Torah study, I feel like we can marry those approaches. And that's sort of like the question is, how do we do that? And I think to go back to, you know, kind of how we started in an earlier conversation of like, how do we sit in Torah? How do we dwell in it? How do we explore it? Because we have so much time to like dwell in Torah and meditate on it and think about it and like reconsider it, we have time to take different approaches with it. So we can at one point say, I want to take a super historical approach and I want to look for archaeological evidence that you know, talks about where were the ancient Israelites at this moment of our biblical history? You know, can we pinpoint who would have been in the area around Beersheba in this century? Like, and we can, we can't necessarily say, yes, there was a guy named Abraham and he did have a son named I like that. We can't do that. But we can say, yes, there were people living here and here's how they might have lived. And here's what might have influenced their ideas around God or around the universe or morality or tradition and ritual. Or you can take a super a historical approach. You can take a super like, I'm going to take this as literal fact. I'm going to take this as the literal word of God with absolutely no metaphorical content attached, and I'm going to live it 100%, you know, literally, inerrantly. That's fine. You can do all sorts of things with Torah, and I think that's one of my favorite things about this show is that we get to, you know, kind of talk to people about how they bring Torah into their own lives. So as much as I, you know, I asked earlier, where do you see yourself in this Torah portion? I kind of want to ask that same question, but in a different way. What do you take out of this Torah portion? Like what in this to you says, this is something I want to, you know, take out and bring with me on my daily life. Like what sticks with you? That's a great question. I definitely think, I feel like I'm cheating in this answer because it's so like often quoted and feels like low hanging fruit. But the idea of, you know, let's, if there's 50 righteous people, then we will not punish the guilty for the sake of the innocent, even if there's only five righteous people, even if there's only one righteous person. But I do think that that is a foundation of like our approach to justice within Torah and then within like the time of the Israelites. And I think that's very important. 
both in the sort of metaphorical story of, or perhaps not metaphorical, but both within the biblical story and within real life and applications today. I almost want to say that, like, I identify within this Parsha as the reader. Like, I feel like that's okay, too. If you, maybe you're the outside observer in a way that is similar to, like, the messengers of God who are there with a mission, and our mission is probably not like theirs. I think our mission is maybe just, you know, study and community engagement and things like that, but you're just sort of going along for the ride. So one more similar question. If you had to not take a message out of the text, but give a message, if you had one thing that you wanted to stick with listeners, one thing you wanted people to walk away with after listening to this episode, what might you want to leave them with? I think that I've been thinking a lot about artistic depictions of the Akedah and the idea of like blind faith, this idea that Abraham's just doing something because God said so. And I think to me that faith is like anything but ignorant. I think it's a trust that is so incredibly powerful and is a guiding mechanism in his life that doesn't reflect like a total sacrifice of himself to God. I mean, he's like arguing with God all the time, especially, I mean, even at the beginning of the Parsha. And I think that that's a conviction that like we should be so lucky to feel in a way, not literally to feel convicted to sacrifice someone, but just to feel a conviction that strongly is a blessing, I think. And yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with feeling things strongly and standing very firm in your foundations. I think that if your gut is telling you that that is what's right, or that that's what's true to you, or that this is a boundary that you have that you don't want someone to violate, that that is a conviction you should trust. Hey, Git. You know, I've always talked about the fact that I think engaging people happens best when people are able to share a meal and a story. Okay, yeah, love meals, love stories. And one of the things that I've really loved about what you do so creatively every single week and what you've been doing for the past two plus years is you create a Shabbat ritual for people to create a drink in their stories, right? To be able to share and create this drink, which helps kind of bolster the stories that supports the stories that we share every week in our Torah portion. And I just want to uplift that, that Midrashic Mixology, while a really cool name, is your special way, Gabe, of really bringing a ritual to Shabbat every week where people get to share a drink and a story together. And I think that's really cool. And so I'm curious what you have for us this week. But I also just want to say like, hey, Gabe, great job. Thanks, Amanda. I appreciate that. This week on our Midrashic Mixology segment for Parashat Vayera, we have the mysterious messenger. We start with our three mystery dudes, or in this case, three lime wedges. Drop them into a shaker and muddle them up with a pinch of Lot's wife, I mean salt, and just the tiniest splash of sweet vermouth. Add in two ounces of mezcal for Sodom's smoky destruction, shout out to episode two's smokin' Sodom margarita, and a half ounce of honey. Shake all of that up with ice and strain over fresh ice in a rocks glass. Top with two ounces of cranberry juice because this has been a pretty violent Torah portion. 
For a non-alcoholic version, skip the vermouth and swap out the mezcal with two ounces of black iced tea. In either case, garnish with a thicket of rosemary, that is a sprig, and an extra squeeze of lime juice. L'chaim. L'chaim. Yeah, you definitely need something to represent blood. Cranberry juice felt like the right thing. But it's also like, it's a little tart, a little sweet, will kind of play nice with the lime and the mezcal, that kind of smoky but like slightly sweet flavor. I think it'll, it'll all play nice together. You have your fire and your brimstone. Absolutely. I really liked that when you were trying to think of a name for this for story time that all I could think about was the multiverse because of all the different stories that kind of come together in this particular portion, which, you know, isn't super helpful. And by the way, as we like to joke, this episode is not sponsored by Marvel, but it could be. And so generally, I just appreciate that even the messengers are confusing. I know, Gabe, earlier today, you were like, wait, there's three, but then only two go. What happened to the third one? And so maybe that's the question of this week's drink, right? Like is, you know, you said three lime wedges, but do only two really end up in the drink at the end? Like who knows? And what happens to the other lime? Ooh, I guess we got to find out. For anyone that knows me, they know that I love a good story time. You know, when Talmud study comes, you know, and, and I hear Tashima come in here, usually there's a story time. You know, when there are parables, I get excited about story time. Anytime that there's the ability for a story to help me understand something better, I'm down. And that's one of the reasons I really like Vaira. I think that there are so many stories that we can take things from. And also, heads up for anyone who hasn't been able to tell, Gabe and I get really easily distracted sometimes, and there are a lot of stories in Vaira. So Amelia and Gabe in Vieira were given so many stories that it can be like really hard to keep our focus and keep on track. So what's a top tip for making sure that we keep our readers or our listeners focused when we're sharing an important story? Amelia, we'll start with you. I feel like my answer to this as a journalist is to like cut the trimmings and just focus on like one central theme but of course when you're approaching Torah study I didn't you know I wouldn't necessarily cut things out but I do think it's okay to just remind yourself that if you are struggling with something or you maybe just like have spent a lot of time on like Abimelech's well and not enough time on the sacrifice of Isaac that you can come back to it and that's why we come back to it you can just take a deep breath and say like, you know what, I didn't get through all of this in a way that was satisfactory to me perhaps this week, but next week is a new portion and next year I get to visit this one all over again. Amazing. I know it can be difficult, especially when our minds are in so many different places and it feels like we're always multitasking. Gabe, I know that this is a big thing for you about trying to make sure that we're able to get like a main point across even when we're all over the place. What's your big tip? Okay, so I actually have like a very specific tip that I think can be used in a lot of different spaces. You can like broaden it. But this is uh, something I learned from a mentor, from my teacher, Rabbi Neil Hirsch. And basically, I was writing a sermon, and I don't give a lot of sermons, but I was writing a sermon. And something I was doing was I was trying to 
read a couple of lines of the Hebrew, of the verses of Torah, and give a translation. And so I was going back and forth Hebrew to English. I was saying Hebrew, 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 English, 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 Hebrew, 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 English, English, English. And he basically said, Gabe, that's not actually how you want to do it. And I said, what, what do you mean? Like, I thought that made the most sense because I wanted them to, like, hear the Hebrew so that they understood this is what I'm translating. And he said, well, yeah, and that would be great if they all, you know, understood Hebrew. The issue is that they're going to hear the Hebrew, they're going to tune out, and by the time they realize you're back in English, they're going to have missed what it meant. And so it was this really interesting moment of saying, you know, sometimes we have to not necessarily put things in the order that we want to for aesthetic reasons, but rather we have to think about how it's going to be most comprehensible. And sometimes those things really line up. Sometimes the way we want things to be visually, the way we want things to be orally, is the way that it makes the most sense to people. But sometimes it's not. And so you have to really keep your goals in mind of what is really going to be understood best by your reader, by your listener, by your congregant, by your student. I love that. I think for me, I'm probably in a mix between the two of like trying to make sure that the major point gets repeated, you know, a decent amount and trying to think about what's going to be most relevant for the person that I'm working with. I feel really close to both of your answers. I think for me, my major thing is always to try to make sure that people understand a question, you know, that they're able to hear why we're asking the question or walk away with their own question and say like, oh, like this podcast was asking this question and that's what they were really talking about this week. And I think for us, if we were going to say like the one thing we hoped that you walked away with this week was the question of why are there so many stories in Viera and like what are we supposed to do with them? then hopefully we did a good job. Or if you came up with your own questions coming and listening to this episode, then you did a great job and we'd love to hear them. And so I think that there's always room for those questions and those commentaries in conversation. And Amelia, people very well might want to continue the conversation with you. I mean, it's not every day we have a journalist and a playwright come on to share story time with us. And so Amelia, if people want to continue the conversation, how can they best find or follow you? Yeah, I would love to connect with listeners. This is such a strange moment in time to say, like, follow me on Twitter because that platform is getting a bit of a shakeup. But, like, for now, you can follow me on Twitter at Amelia Mare underscore A M E L A A M E R R underscore. But I'm also on Instagram at Mia underscore Merrill. And I guess we'll just see what the future holds for those platforms and the billionaire owners. But for now, that's uh, that's where you can find me. <laughs> Incredible. We love it. We love to hear it. We'll make sure to put those in the show notes for people that are looking for them. For now, thank you so much, Amelia, for joining us this week. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you to Gabe for just coming through with all of the stories, be it your, you know, rundown every week or your Midrashic mixology and finding ways for us to connect kind of comedically and also sometimes really like heartfelt and I love it. I just, I feel really lucky to get to do this work with you. Thank you to Edon, our executive producer who couldn't be here tonight because he is celebrating a Simcha in his own life. Uh, and for those that don't know, happy birthday, Agnes, at the time of recording, but it'll be a week later by the time it goes out. And thank you to our editor, Kate, who always makes us sound so brilliant. And of course, thank you to our listeners for sharing in our stories and for sharing your stories with us. We love to hear more. So if you're ever interested in coming and joining us, do what Amelia did. Reach out. 
Go to www.drinkingandrushing.com or shoot us a message on our social media. We're pretty good at responding. We hope that you have a wonderful week, but hey, don't leave just yet. Our conclusion's coming at you soon. Gabe, I really love storytelling and I actually really love journalism too. I think that one of my favorite things is hearing people's stories and learning about who they are and what makes them tick. I mean, hey, that's part of the reason that we're doing this podcast is the idea that we get to uplift everybody's stories and hear how they take Judaism and they take ownership of it in their own terms and their own time. And a little bit, that's what Amelia talked about tonight, this idea of being able to write the story as it is, but also to sometimes make the story your own. Right. I think what's really incredible about Amelia's work is that not only does she do this journalism work where she, you know, looks at what's going on in the world and how does that affect our lives today, but she also does this theatrical work where she says, what's going on in the world today? How can I, you know, take that, live with that, marinate in that? And how can I put something new into the world? How can I put something into the world that might move things along? So I really appreciate that she's like kind of working from both ends on that kind of idea that there's, you know, the stories that we're observing that are happening around us. And then there are the stories that we create ourselves. I think that's true. I also think that there was an interesting conversation that the two of you had about likable characters. And the fact that in my era, we have a lot of characters who I think are not always likable, but also some who I think are underrated. I mean, Lot is pretty underrated. He really goes out of his way to make sure that he's being just as hospitable as, you know, his uncle is. He saw Abraham's example and he goes, hey, like, I want to do the same thing. Please give me a chance. Give me a chance. And he really pushes for the opportunity to serve. I think that's something worth looking for. And also, he tries to save his daughters. He tries to save his entire family. He tries to step up and, you know, see what he can do to be a good family man in that moment. Abraham does the same. He tries to make sure that the tent is wide open. He tries to make sure that his family is being taken care of. And then, I don't know, he might have some missteps with Ishmael, but, like, what are you going to do? He might have some missteps with Isaac, but what are you going to do? And I do think there is something to be said about, right, like, you know, who was it, Dostoevsky, that said all happy families are the same, but all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. So these stories give us something to look to and try to wrestle with. I know that's not this week's portion, but I do think it's important that we wrestle not only with Jacob and the angel. I think, you know, wrestling with Torah is one of those things that we aim to do every week on this podcast. I think it's something that we never want to come in and just, you know, be preaching the text. I think we also don't want to just be like preaching against the text. I think we constantly want to be kind of uplifting it, turning it, thinking about it, and having uh, people come in with new and different perspectives who can help us do that. So if you are somebody who thinks that, you know what, I have an interesting perspective, I have interesting experiences, I have something going on in my life that really connects to this piece of Torah, I want to talk to you about it. We'd love to hear from you. So you can contact us on any of our social media. We're Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have our new Discord channel, which is linked below. You can also find us at drinkingandroshing.com. So we really hope you'll reach out to us. Yeah, continue the conversation, take it offline, and, you know, maybe join us one of these days. Lechaim.
Hi, I'm Amelia Merrill, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Tour with a Twist. And remember, if you go up the road with your dad and you can't find the sacrifice, you might be the sacrifice.